Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today we are honored to have as our guest, Paul Kiesel. Paul Kiesel is on every list of the leading trial lawyers in the state of California. He has been president in addition of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. He's been appointed to a wide range of committees to deal with court procedures. He is co-chair of the Open Courts Coalition to deal with our current crises. And we're going to be talking to Paul in the context of the enormous backlog and civil trial issues we now have. We're going to do two, basically start with two case studies involving Paul and why I wanted to talk to him. One is the way he was able to handle a case in the current context and get it resolved and why it might be a model for others to look at. And the second is, in addition to everything else, Paul has been a leader in the use of technology in his law practice. And that's a separate issue in terms of adapting to the current circumstance and putting those two together, what he's done in the case, what he's done in his practice, how that might translate into models that can be incorporated by courts in dealing with our current issues. Paul, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time. Howard, uh, I've been such a fan of yours for so many years from uh, the time that you were practicing so avidly uh, and your work with the State Bar along with your time at uh, your most recent law firm. It has been a pleasure to have followed you and I'm, I'm thrilled to have a chance to talk to you and sort of give my thoughts to the legal community about how we get to work in the pandemic environment that in my view, there is some real silver linings to what we've been about for the last 12 months and I'm just praying that we continue these practices going into the future. Let's start with a case that you've written about. You had a, a trial scheduled uh, on May 5th, 2020, I think, in, in, in El Dorado County in, in the South Lake Tahoe Courthouse in El Dorado County. And the trial date, it was a civil jury trial, May 5th, 2020. What happened as that trial date approached? Well, as a trial date approach, we, we were hopeful uh, originally that we would continue to have that, that May trial date, that uh, El Dorado County perhaps wasn't as affected by the COVID shutdowns. The court had continued to have hearings. We were doing them remotely. And the thought was that we'd be up in uh, South Lake Tahoe uh, in a great time of year, and we'd be trying this case before a jury and it'd take about a week to try that case. And then what happened? What happened to the trial date and what happened as you went along? Well, what's happened to much of the state, which is the COVID numbers uh, creeped up. The court closed its doors uh, to day to day practice. Jury trials were put on hold and it was clear come May that it was going to be likely the summer or fall. I mean, we kept being optimistic every couple of months. We thought we'd get back into business and it became really clear in around November that this was not happening anytime soon. Certainly not a jury trial was going to be happening anytime soon. And uh, we needed to sort of reassess how this case was going to move forward. And of course, a person deeply involved in this, we often talk about lawyers' issues with scheduling, but there was a client who, who had been injured, uh, a client who was on schedule, who, who was at issue for receiving compensation. And now suddenly there was no no trial date moving forward. So what did you do? How did you deal with the issue? Well, this was one of those unique situations, it, it, not unique necessarily, but it was sort of unique with this particular uh, case itself. So Andrew Siegel, who was the named plaintiff, Andrew was a passenger in a vehicle actually driven in an Uber. He'd come in from New York for a bachelor party weekend in uh, South Lake Tahoe. It was a July uh, 2017 party. And uh, so as a result, he's a negligent free passenger. There's no question that he was not at fault for anything that happened in this incident. As it happened, although Uber has a healthy insurance policy, Andrew was struck by a Ford F-150 and the defendant actually had more insurance coverage than Uber. So he had a policy of a million plus dollars, uh, and therefore we had the ability in this case, unlike many of my cases, to discuss the issues of liability and the driver of the Ford stipulated, agreeing to liability and not having to put that issue before the trier of fact, 
which narrowed substantially the issues that would be tried at the end of the day. So we can say that this had that those unique characteristics, but still in all, if it had been a jury trial, the issue of damages would have gone to the jury and you had to deal with the fact that you weren't getting a jury trial. So I was taken by the fact that you did some very innovative things uh, in this case uh, that may provide some sort of, of model, as I said, for issues that lawyers may want to discuss to resolve cases. How did you wind up handling this? Sure. And I'm glad you asked because, of course, this was unique and only born out of the, the prospects of the, the COVID pandemic that we've been struggling with. So the court in El Dorado County uses Zoom as their primary platform for uh, doing appearances. And we agreed that Zoom would be the platform if we were to go to trial. And so what I suggested to the defendant was this, look, why don't we, you stipulate the liability, We'll put on only damages before the judge. We'll try the case to the judge, not, not a jury. We'll try the case to the judge. And quite frankly, I said to my opposing counsel, look, we don't need to call doctors. They actually did not have a defense medical exam. So they weren't even contesting the nature and extent of, of Andrew's injuries. It was just a question of damages. And uh, it, it was not a huge case. It was a case that we had demanded a million dollars for at the outset. And they had uh, turned down the million dollar offer or demand, I should say. And ultimately, as we kind of got closer to the trial date, I said, look, why don't we do this? Why don't we waive jury, try the case before Judge McLaughlin, we'll use Zoom as our platform, and let's present the, it's really a damages case, let's present the injuries, the, the, the uh, expenses the client has incurred, and get a sense from the judge what his conclusion is on damages. Instead of having 12, we'd agree to the judge. And you mentioned, I just want to say, you mentioned Judge McLaughlin. We're talking about Judge Michael McLaughlin in, in El Dorado County, not, not Judge William McLaughlin in, in, in L.A. County. True, uh, that's right. Now, if the, let's contrast to what happened here. If the case had gone forward in a traditional way, you were looking at several days of, of trial with everyone present. In El, in, in, at South Lake Tahoe. South Lake Tahoe, by the way, in El, uh, El Dorado County is uh, east of Sacramento. It starts uh, east of Sacramento and, and it keeps going through the Sierra foothills, the South Lake Tahoe, uh, the South Lake Tahoe courthouse is in South Lake Tahoe, right at the southern tip of Lake Tahoe. You get there by driving along Highway 50 from Sacramento for about an hour and three quarters or or flying to Reno and driving down. But that's where it is, very historic spot, just uh, whenever you mention it, because in, in, on the long Highway 50 in Placerville or near to Placerville is where James Marshall discovered gold at, at Sutter's Mill. But but now it's, it's, it's 2021 and we're facing, in ordinary circumstance without the pandemic, you were looking at what, about a five-day jury trial with everyone flying in and being in South Lake Tahoe for the five days. Correct. I told my client it, we, it would be somewhere between twenty-five and fifty thousand dollars to put the case onto trial. Uh, we'd have to stay in Tahoe for ten days. Probably we'd come up on a, a Thursday, get set up for that weekend, get the war room going, and then we pick the jury. Probably take a day or so to get the jury in place. I'd have to call the doctor who was the operating surgeon. I'd have to call probably a physical rehabilitation specialist. I'd have to call witnesses to establish the damages I have. And, uh, and that would not be inexpensive. And the doctors, who's a South Lake Tahoe physician, would have to have come in. I had a subpoena him. He'd come in to testify. Uh, there was a, a doctor in Seattle where he had additional surgeries who I might have done. I would have to fly to Seattle to do a videotape deposition. And at least I'd introduce the videotape and supposed to flying him in from Seattle to testify. But putting all that together, you're looking at at least a week in front of the court, and you're looking at about twenty-five dollars to $50,000 in actual costs to present this case, even still admitted liability, submitting that to a jury so they could get all of the information they need to get the damages uh, appropriately. Let's cut to the chase and then go backward from there. Finally, the hearing that was done on Zoom lasted how long? Less... Uh, about a morning, didn't it? Yeah, it lasted two hours and, and 15 minutes. Two hours and 15 minutes was, was the length of the trial. And you got a decision, you got a ruling from, from the judge. Correct. By the end of the week, we'd received a ruling from the judge. And uh, ultimately, the, the judge's ruling was 
uh, always, I, for me, Paul Kiesel, I always evaluate success, not by what the jury awards, but my measure of success is always, did I get more from the trier of fact than my demand? Because if I get less than my demand, then I, I'm not sure it's a win. It may be a, a win at the end of the day, but to me, victory is, did you, did you properly evaluate the case? Did you get the number right? And so I'm pleased to say the judge's award was higher than my last demand and was higher than my 998 offer. So I received costs uh, on top of the jury, the judge's decision and therefore exceeded the cap. So to be clear, we had a high low. So because when you're trying it to a judge, sometimes when you're trying to a jury, but you like to have some protection. And so in this case, the defendants, I agreed to a, a, a floor. No matter what the judge did, I had a protection on the floor and I gave them a ceiling. So no matter what the judge awarded, there was a ceiling uh, and it was a binding result. And so as it was, Howard, we, we, we blew off the ceiling uh, at the end of the day. And so the award was, uh, was paid and paid within uh, 14 days of the court's decision. Well, I'm interested in this in terms of how of the methods that was used to deal with a case that otherwise still probably would have been on the calendar awaiting for jury trial. We know what's happening in other around the, the, the state. Very few civil jury trials are being scheduled They're, to the extent dates are being given. They're now being given in some cases as late as uh, 2022. Uh, and so uh the question is, is this something that can be used? You the incentive to defendant's counsel was to put a lid on. That had to be the incentive for the defendant's counsel to. I would say no. I would say there's actually another incentive for the defendant. There's a, an incentive for the, uh, in this case, the insurance company, because they themselves probably save easily $100,000 because they would have paid the hourly rate of this attorney he would have been preparing for the case. He would have lived up in, in um, South Lake Tahoe. They themselves let the called witnesses. They have spent money on. So they were able to substantially reduce their transactional costs by doing it this way. Just as we save substantial uh, time and, and costs, they did the same. So I think there was an incentive for the defendants to agree to this as much as there was for my client who wanted closure. And I should point out, there is a co-plaintiff who was the driver of the vehicle involved, that co-plaintiff would not agree to a jury trial. Oh, I'm sorry, would not agree to a court trial. And so that case is still in the court and will likely be there for another year before that gets resolved. Well, the, the issue here is, what does this tell us? You're talking about comparative costs. You're talking about, in one case, the comparative cost of, of the 10 days in South Lake Tahoe, of the witnesses, the, the uh, all flying there, of being there, of the transactional cost. And essentially, what you were able to negotiate and to arrange as a separate process was something that was able to essentially take some of what otherwise would have been transactional costs and make it available to your client. That really is one of the net effects uh, uh, economically here. And we should also mention there was there had been an attempt to mediate, to settle this case by mediation, hadn't there been, that it failed? There had been, in fact, my partner, Mariana McConnell. Mariana actually went up to San Francisco with jams and spent a total of 14 hours on the mediation in this case, because she was, I think, in Texas at the time, and to go from Texas to San Francisco, she spent 14 hours unsuccessfully in mediating the case to think it took two hours and 15 minutes to try the case. So one of the questions here is, we're looking at an issue of case management. And what happened in this case is, case management by counsel permitted a way to get this case resolved. It didn't settle in mediation. It otherwise would have been delayed on the calendar. But using these case management techniques, in terms of the high-low and what was otherwise done, permitted the case to be resolved in two and a half hours as opposed to five days with all the attendant costs. So in terms of you're involved in a great deal of attempts to deal with this crushing backlog, that we have. That's really the context of the discussion, the crushing backlog that the courts have and are going to continue to face. So what you did here provide some, some model, some, 
some techniques that can be used in other cases to help deal with this backlog? A thousand percent. I, I can't even begin to tell you what we've learned from this experience, what, what tools we're incorporating into our practices that make this state old days. I always like to say this, what we're doing today is no different what they did 300 years ago. The difference is we're using computers to generate the paper instead of having handwritten pleadings. Uh, and we're, and we're, but we're still walking into court. We're still presenting ourselves individually before the trier of fact. The, the process is, has been the same. There's been no great innovation. This pandemic is a chance for us to innovate in a way the legal community, I always like to say the legal community, our lives are looking back. It's how we've been trained to, to work. We look behind us. We look to precedent. We don't look to the future. We look in the past. And, and that has slowed us down from incorporating some of the really wonderful practices that we can use that I've been preaching for, for 30 Well, tell us, tell us, you started out by saying, I, I can't begin to tell you, but I'm yeah, going to urge you to I'm begin not to tell us. <laughs> I urge you to begin to tell us. So let's start with You this. did it in this case. What kind of things should the bar and the courts look to now that could help and, 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 rec and, and replicate the success, even if not the precise method of what you did in this case? So case management is probably 95% of the court and counsel's ongoing obligation. The trial, there's so few cases that actually go to trial. It's really the management of the cases and, and the remote technology that exists today. Even this Zoom that you and I are having together right now, though it's gonna be an audio podcast, we're looking at each other, I'm watching your reactions, I'm engaging with you in, in a very visceral way. And this technology, exists today in a way that we need to incorporate this as the, the standard way to approach the court. The idea of having to drive to a downtown location, to park, to go inside, to deal with security, to wait in the courtroom for, for your appearance to happen. And, and by the way, forget the travel from distant cities. Today, the ability to handle cases remotely and have appearances for, in my view, the majority of court appearances to be done in a remote context is efficient, it's environmentally friendly, and it is incredibly cost-effective. So I think implementing remote technology resources, which everyone is getting up to speed on now, is really something that we should not lose going forward. We need to hang on to this piece of the pandemic that really promotes efficiency and cost effectiveness in the operation of cases and the courts. Well, let's talk about the relatively easy question then. In all proceedings in court that does not involve witness credibility, and again, we're only talking about civil cases, does not involve witness credibility in any way, does not involve jury issues, all the purely, purely legal issues that are discussed in, in, in motions and discovery disputes and motions for summary judgment and a whole range of things, things that everyone used to drive downtown for or to other courthouses, sit in the department in the morning from 8.30 until 9.15 waiting to appear, have spent five or six hours between traveling back and forth. Would you say going forward that what we've learned that all proceedings that do not involve witness credibility uh, or jurors in, in civil cases should now be handled remotely? I would say yes. I would say at a minimum, we should make that offer to folks and the courts should embrace that as a, as a way to proceed forward and not have the go into the court, go through security, sit in the courtroom for, for however long till you're called. This should be the go forward process for all of us. We'll talk more about it. I just want to mention one thing. You said we always we, we seem to look to the past and be bound by it and not the future. There are some lessons from the past. You know, I did a podcast with Jay Tidmarsh, who's a professor at Notre Dame Law School a couple of months ago, on the Great London Fire Court of 1666. Uh, the Great Fire of London was in 1666. And interestingly enough, followed the plague of 1665. Uh, but in 1666, central London burns down. And it wasn't just the case of the properties burning down, but wealth in London was tied up in tenancies and subtenancies. There were eight, nine, 10 levels of subtenancies. All wealth was tied up, incredibly complex decisions, absolute black letter law. 
there was going to be long pieces of litigation about this. Parliament at the beginning of 1667 passes a special law for a London fire court that totally changes the rules, the procedures, appoints a couple dozen judges to handle the court, uh, establishes deadlines, uh, orders the court to be fair, uh, gives the court the power to redraw uh, leases, to extend debts. And lo and behold, counsel participate. Uh, Sir Matthew Hale, one of the great uh, lawyers and judges in English history, was one of his proponents and one of the judges in the court. And within a period of two years, almost all the financial disputes affecting wealth that came out of the Great London Fire of 1666 are resolved. And that rapid resolution provides a basis for the very rapid rebuilding uh, of London, including Christopher Wren and St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's amazing in the 17th century parliament, this history that we look back on as hierarchical and hidebound and, and unable to move. 17th century parliament in England had the ability to change the procedures to deal basically with the kind of crisis we're going through today in the effective procedure on pandemic. So it's not just, we, we look, maybe we look to the past only for the wrong things, but there's some lessons from the past that we might look for other things. We've been talking about what procedures may change the models that Paul Kiesel has used. You know, those of you listening to this can get MCLA credit, one hour of MCLA credit through the Daily Journal. We'll take a short break so you can hear the process and exactly how you can get the MCLA credit. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit, all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. On behalf of the Daily Journal, the Weekly Brief congratulates the mediators and arbitrators featured in the 2021 resolution issue. Read about these skilled dispute resolution professionals and columns from experts explaining new challenges and solutions in the field. Follow the link in the description of this episode or go to dailyjournal.com slash special underscore reports. We're now back from the break. We've spoken about what, what Paul Kiesel was able to do in his one case in terms of resolution. We talked about needing the continuance of virtual appearances uh, in issues involving uh, pure legal issues. Uh, but let's talk about the issue of even witness credibility in non-jury trials. I mean, <laughs> we've had experience watching this. Is, is there any diminution of, of the trier effect of the judge's ability to make a credibility determination because the witness is on the screen as opposed to being physically present? Actually, I would say just the opposite. Uh, I think that appearing on the screen provides greater access to the court and the trier effect to look at issues of credibility. Why? Because when you've got a witness in the box testifying, maybe the witness is looking at, at plaintiff's counsel or defense counsel the whole time, certainly not looking at the judge, certainly not looking at the jury, unless they're a really great trained expert who doesn't look at the lawyer, but looks at the jury the entire time. The, the elegance of the remote platform, I'm not going to say Zoom because it's like saying Xerox, right? It's a, it's a copy, a photocopy. I like Zoom as a platform, but I'm always looking for what's going to be the next great platform that we use. But to answer your question, this is me. You're looking right at me. You're watching my eyes. You're listening to the timber of my voice. You're watching the use of my hands. I would submit that you're as capable, if not better, at kind of evaluating the quality of the information coming to you through the remote platform than if you're in a courtroom with more distance, less audio quality and a whole lot less eye contact than you and I are having right now. I think a judge or a trier of fact has better, quite frankly, from a plaintiff standpoint, I'm really interested in the idea of, of watching my jurors on a video. 
I, I don't look at the jury when I'm trying a case. Maybe I have other people in the courtroom watching the jury to get the jurors reactions to what's happening. I don't get that benefit. But when I'm trying a case remotely, I can put eyes on each of the jurors without them feeling uncomfortable, like I'm looking at them because I, I am, but they don't know it. I actually think the remote technology allows you greater access to the witnesses than we currently have in our existing system. And there's, I've commented on this in other contexts. You know, there's a lot of data to support uh, the the sensitivity of, of viewing people on screen. One of the fastest growing areas of telemedicine, telemedicine, of course, is exploding in terms of use. But one of the fastest growing areas in telehealth and telemedicine is telepsychiatry. Uh, many years ago uh, in, in, in Arizona, in dealing with, with the tribal uh, people uh, and the vast distances and others who live because of the distances in Arizona, uh, telepsychiatry started synchronously. People got on the screen at the same time, the psychiatrist and the, and the, and the patient. Peer-reviewed result, exactly the same. No harm to in-person therapy. Well, let me just then, Howard, just say this. My wife is a clinical psychologist. My wife is doing telehealth. My yeah. wife is doing therapy with her patients. A third of my wife's current patient, patient list, she's never met physically. Yeah. She's only so, met them remotely. And it works perfectly. Yeah. So you've got additional, there's so much experience in this in terms of the ability to make judgments. Uh, and of course, if we're talking about witnesses in court, if it's a non-jury trial, the judge is basically looking at the witness down uh, at an angle, seeing the, so, uh, the shoulder and the side of the face. So we can say there's data and experience and a lot of people are agreeing that you can do as much in terms of credibility with the witness. Are, would there be ways that so that we can do non-jury trials uh, in, in this way with some confidence uh, about credibility? Are there ways to involve jurors as well so that the jurors can be dealt with virtually? Because that's now the great barrier to civil juror trial. Jurors are not coming in. The yield, you get different stories, but the yield in LA appears to be between five and 10% in terms of people who show up and jurors don't wanna come and they don't wanna sit in courtrooms and we need these extra large courtrooms. We all talked about that. So is there a way to involve, to incorporate jurors into the process so we could have civil jury trials virtually? I think the answer is a year ago, I would have said no. I, I don't think we can. I think we, we need to stick with in-person jury trials. I think my now that we've gone a year, literally a year, without having a jury trial in, in, in L.A. County, I think we have to be creative and think about ways uh, of bringing jurors to remote locations, whether it's to libraries or to the courthouse or, or even from their own homes. I, I said before the, the broadcast began, my biggest fear is really the demographics. I worry about those that don't have access to the resources, but if we could make it available to them, make it available in a place that they could go to and be safe and participate, quite frankly, there's no reason not to have a remote jury process. I would love, I know ABOTA, American Board of Trial Advocates have been looking at that throughout the course of this year. I know there've been some uh, remote video trials. There were certainly a couple on Alameda that were mesothelioma cases. Um, so I think to be fair, we have got to really find a way uh, to bring jurors in in this virtual context where it's going to take us. I, I think that I described this really as being a, a, the cases like are a fire hose, the kind of pressure that builds up with a fire hose. And it's literally like we got a, a crimp in the fire hose for the last year. And when the pressure releases, the, the explosion is going to be so massive, I, it's going to take us years to catch up. I don't know how we're going to find a way unless we have to replicate Parliament from 1667. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. Well, that's why I was so taken with uh, your trial going from five days to uh, two and a half hours. But, you know, clearly there is an issue of, of the demographics here. Will you get a fair rep representative set from the community, people who don't have computers? But there are technical fixes for that. It may be just a financial issue. For example, you could have remote locations all over the county, uh, all over the county in smaller offices that are specially set up for people who don't have computers to come to. And they're all set up uh, 
uh, with the technology and people walk in and they're taken, they're set up and, and you talk to them. They are not kept out because of demographics. You're not having computers. If you have a widespread distribution of facilities, so that can be dealt with. Uh, the other thing about jurors, I don't know if you've used it, but you know, a lot of people have done uh, what, what, what amounts to focus groups uh, online. You can use the Mechanical Turk, you can use other technology, uh, and people have done focus groups by enrolling jurors online, presenting issues to jurors, uh, changing the demographics uh, in, in terms of background, age, gender, uh, ethnic group, and have able to find that they can do very serious and successful focus groups uh, with a great many different uh, different groups, much less expensively they can do by pulling individuals uh, into the regular focus group. So the technology is being used to evaluate how jurors will react uh, in terms of lawyers making making judgments. Correct, and I have used online resources to do focus groups, and this is no different than that. It may be a, you know, a longer period of time that it would go on for, but the same concept, no doubt. And uh, you know, I, I was uniquely prepared for the pandemic because my firm has been paperless for seven, actually now eight years. We've, we have no file cabinets. So everyone at the firm has got iPads and all of their files are on their iPads or, or remotely here at the office. So we're a cloud-based firm. So working remotely was really very easy to do. Um, but the challenge is for the clients, for the clients who really need to get closure, who've got very substantial injuries, who need to get resolution because there's millions of dollars of damages that they've got hanging over their heads and they need recovery to live day in and day out. Um, I'm most concerned about, about my client's ability to, to get closure and therefore financial security uh, going forward. And that's, I think, the challenge for all of us is forget individually how it affects us. It's really how can we protect our clients uh, in this new world? That's so, so important to put it that way, because, you know, all of us, uh, lawyers, judges, everyone in the legal system uh, really is in a regardless of the competitiveness and regardless of the adversarial system in the largest sense is in a collaborative enterprise to provide justice to clients. And it's the clients that count. And it's the clients that have been devastated in terms of the delays here and why we're looking at, at technology as a, as a way of dealing with it. Uh, you've been ahead of the game. Right now, offices are going uh, paperless. Uh, offices are becoming virtual offices. There's one virtual law firm now that has 250 partners uh, throughout the world that serves Fortune 500 companies, literally does not have brick and mortar offices. Everyone joins virtually. It's a partnership. It's a regular law firm. It's Fisher and Broyles. It's well-known. Uh, many law firms now are looking to the future where lawyers will only come in perhaps two or three days a week, perhaps for conferences. Uh, law firms' real estate space is being reconfigured in terms of what offices are available. But you were ahead of this game. You were way, way ahead. And so one of the things when you closed your office on, on, on March 16th, 2020, you say you were paperless. Tell us how you got there. How did you create the option for what is now a completely virtual law firm because it had been set up to function in that way? What did you do and how did you do that? It started about 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, we had high-speed scanners and I had a rule that whenever a new case came in, everything was going to be done by scanning the paper. And so we developed the, the case law where every single piece of physical correspondence or pleadings were scanned into the system and were saved remotely online. And on January 1, 2013, that was a date where my dear friend Ray Boucher went off on his own and Bill Larson, my former partner, uh, retired. So I, it became Kiesel Law, January 1st, 2013, and I needed some more space. And about 20% of my, my building had files in the file cabinet. And I said, what, why, why am I using 20% of my space in my building for file cabinets when I, everything's on the computer? It's all there remotely. What we need to do is we need to shed the paper. We need to shred, literally shred the paper. We need to remove these file cabinets. I need to put 
uh, working space where the file cabinets are. And we went cold turkey. I literally pulled the file cabinets out, shredded the physical paper. And I also said, the, the Xerox machine is not your friend. This is not an excuse to use the Xerox machine to create paper that I'm now throwing out or recycling. You've got to use your electronic device to process your information. So it was January 1, 2013. The file cabinets disappeared. The process of scanning the mail and all the material that comes in remained the same. And literally, we removed Steve Archer, who is now uh, of counsel, and he's semi-retired living up in Wallala. Steve was all, the only one at the firm because he's been practicing law close to 50 years that just never gave up the paper. He kept boxes in his, in his office. I just could never grab those boxes away from him. And certainly my younger lawyers adopt the, the remote technology really well. Um, and it's just proven just a delightful uh, environment to work in. And it isn't even based on servers in your office since it's based on the cloud. You literally, not that you necessarily will go there, but literally you could function. Your law firm could function today without an office. You might have a place to meet clients that's set up specially to meet clients, but except for the need to meet clients, to have a room available for depositions and meetings, which could be dealt with another way. But except for those specific requirements on specific days, you literally could function the way Fisher and Broyles does. You could function without a brick and mortar office. A hundred percent. And right. There's just simply no reason necessarily to have to have a brick and mortar office. The, the investment you need to make in your computer, the investment you need to make in your camera and in your microphone is critical. Having the lighting really what you need to be focusing on is not like which couch to put in your office, but like what lights do you need to have to capture the best image of you as you present yourself to the world, not in your physical space, but in your virtual space. Now tell us just uh, why, because there are lots of options when you use the server, you, you could use a Microsoft or Windows-based system. You could have used the MacBook or Mac-based and you chose the iOS operating system in the iPad. Why did you choose the iOS operating system and the iPad to connect question. the server to run the practice? So let me say this, the, my firm is a totally PC-based practice. Everything is Microsoft. We use Outlook. We use Word. We use Excel and PowerPoint. Everything we do here is PC-based. But up until very recently, the applications on how do you read documents, how do you annotate documents, how do you manipulate documents in, in a, a virtual sense, the iPad and the applications that people were writing to the iPad were so good that it was the fact that we were using the iOS for Apple had much more to do with the fact that there were applications like Liquid Text and Transcript Pad and PDF Expert and, and certain types of programs that were really just strictly Apple-based that we use the Apple uh, products to read and annotate our documents, but everything is still warehoused back at the firm in the, um, in the PC world that we live in. Well, Apple-based, really iOS-based. I mean, they're different even on, on, the, uh, on the Mac. You mentioned one program that I think is, may have been responsible more for people choosing iPad for document management than any other, which is Liquid Text. Uh, tell us about it, just for people who are not familiar with, because so, so many people don't use the iPad in that way, except use it personally rather than for business. So talk to us about a program like Liquid Text, which is an app and what it does for a law practice. So Liquid Text is a remarkable application that allows you to annotate documents. It, it, it actually creates a split screen. So on one side of the screen is the physical document, is a virtual document. And on the other side is a workspace. And what's incredible about Liquid Text is let's say you're reading a brief and you, you have a head note, you can circle that head note. Well, let's, then, I'm going to stop you there because of what people don't really know. You're talking about using the pen. I mean, uh, it's not yeah. your finger. The right. iPad comes with the pen and you use the pen to do the annotation on the screen in the same way that you'd use it on a document. That's correct. Although I will say this. I mean, obviously we, we use the Apple pen here, the Apple pencil at the office. You could use your finger. If you wanted to, you could actually have your finger control the liquid text portion of the screen. But I use the pencil. Apple Pencil, just like I would a normal pencil. And I can both handwrite in, in the margin or to start a check and circle that headnote and then drag the headnote. Literally the text-based headnote can be dragged from the document into the workspace. 
and it becomes completely searchable. So you're creating a, an outline of the case. You're writing whatever you want to write in the margins, but it, just like you did when you were in law school, your, your notes are still on the page. It's just the virtual page that it's on. But now here's the deal. Liquid text, I, I, got, I started using liquid text very early met the owners of Liquid Text and, and my partner who loves the Surface Pro, which is the Microsoft product, Microsoft tablet, said to him about a year and a half ago, what the hell? What's wrong with Microsoft? And so believe it or not, Liquid Text a few months ago came out with their Microsoft version of Liquid Text. So if you have a Surface Pro or any kind of tablet you can write on, you can still use uh, Liquid Text now in a Microsoft world. But you need a screen that you can write on. There are a lot of screens you can't write on. Correct. I mean, you, you need a Surface Pro or some screen that you can actually write on, as you say, for it to work, but it's no longer just an Apple-based product. We're talking about some of the specific technology which Paul Kiesel has used, who was way ahead of the game in terms of moving his office electronically into a paperless office. This, of course, is part of the big story about technology affecting law practice and how it has to affect the courts to deal with the current issues. But it's only one story today. The Daily Journal covers a great many stories. Let's take another break and hear about some of the other stories that the Daily Journal is now handling. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by the Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of March 8th. A panel of federal appeals judges appeared ready to allow a shareholder to challenge California's corporate board diversity law. Judges seemed sympathetic to the shareholder's concern that the law forces votes for certain directors. SB 826, signed into law in 2018, requires California-based corporations to have at least one female director and to proportionately increase that number by the end of 2021. Judge Sandra Ikuda seems the most open to the challenge, and Judge Margaret McCune seems the most skeptical that the challenge has standing. A group of progressive organizations and civil rights activists has sued a facial recognition software company over allegations it illegally collected biometric data. According to the complaint, Clearview AI gathered the data with the intent to harm immigrants and communities of color, which the company's attorney and CEO dispute. The lawsuit claims Clearview violated sections of the California Constitution designed to protect citizens from unwanted access to their data. Clearview has been banned in Canada and the European Union, as well as in some U.S. law enforcement agencies. The complaint demanded a jury trial seeking unspecified compensatory damages and an injunction to stop the company from continuing to collect biometric data in the state. Newly appointed Democratic Senator Alex Padilla is hurrying to gather committee members to vet candidates for federal bench vacancies and U.S. attorney positions. Padilla's communication director and several attorneys chosen for the committees declined to comment, but an attorney familiar with the process told the Daily Journal they are starting to review prospective judges even before everyone is in place. There are many seats to fill, with every U.S. attorney position vacant and multiple judges announcing senior status with more expected to follow. The committee's attorney said it's urgent to bring recommendations to President Joe Biden to work on filling the vacancies. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're back from the break, and we've been talking about how Paul Kiesel has used technology in his law practice. So we have a law firm, your law firm, that is totally cloud-based, uh, that literally would require no brick and mortar except for specific meetings and uses. Uh, now, how does the use of technology like that uh, translate into what now has to be done with courts in terms of managing this backlog? And again, I, I, we've said it before, but I don't think I'd say it too much. When we talk about the backlog, we're talking about tens of thousands of cases, but not even tens of thousands of cases is the word we should use. We're talking about tens of thousands of people. Uh, who are being, uh, it, to the extent that delay has gone on this long, being denied justice uh, because of the difficulty of dealing with the backlog. So how do you use what you've done with technology, what the courts are now doing? What should be done to deal with this backlog now? Well, I think that what needs to happen is the courts need to really embrace the remote technology piece that we've been working on for the last year and not find a way to go back to doing business as usual. I think we need to find a way to have motions for summary judgment done remotely. I think, quite frankly, it's perfectly done remotely. I don't love, to be fair, the LA Court Connect system. 
I've been trying to love this thing for the last nine months. And I really, I dislike the LA court connect system. I know it rolled out earlier than they expected. It was going to be functional, uh, but it's not ready for prime time. And it's too important a role in working with our court system in LA County, not to have a functional virtual system. So I think LA County really needs to look very carefully at the uh, LA Court Connect system, which has really been buggy and, and, and does not operate well for the, for the lawyers who are trying to engage the court, either audio-wise or video-wise. I'm, I'm really disappointed with the rollout of LA Court Connect. Well, let's talk about I mean, we, we certainly can candidly, because we're talking constructively about has to be deal with the backlog. So without any criticism of Core Connect specifically, in the, what in the way that it functions in LA is not adequate and what needs to be corrected? Well, to begin with, what my experience, lawyers are routinely knocked out of the meetings. For no good reason, someone will be on video and then they're gone, or they'll be on the audio call and then they're thrown off. But that's a glitch in the system. That's not designed into the system. It's a glitch in the system that I, I can't tell you whether it's a design problem or it's an implementation problem. But I can tell you when I'm using a system like, for me, Zoom, it does not happen in Zoom. You, you, don't, get auto, you don't get knocked out. You as an individual user might, might have a bandwidth issue, which causes you to get lost when you're on Zoom. But that's not what's happening with LA Core Connect. These are not bandwidth issues. The people have fine programs that got fast bandwidth, their audio is good, and then they're just knocked out. Oh, so that's something, whether a glitch or not, if that problem were solved, if people were no longer knocked out and people stayed in for the full time, whenever they wanted to be in, would it then be an adequate system to deal with, with the remote uh, access? I have more criticisms than just that, and I don't want this to turn into a criticism of, of a particular product, but I will say this. That I think that we as a, as a county, uh, need to look at what is the most effective, closest to personal interaction that we can have in a remote system. I, I, have, I have no uh, bias one way or the other. I guess I have a bias towards Zoom because it's been effective. Um, and I've been using Zoom since January of 2013. The, there were 24 engineers that left Cisco where they were working on WebEx and began Zoom. And I started using Zoom in 2013. I actually did the first Zoom video deposition from Sydney, Australia. In I think it was 2014, I flew to Australia and we did a deposition. It worked flawlessly. So I know the technology is there, Howard, for it to work. Our court needs to find a way not to compromise on the technology because we really need as lawyers to feel it's stable and that the courts have good connection with us. And, and quite frankly, the courts need to have better control over the communication so that if they want to mute you, they can mute everyone. Um, yeah. Well, there are a lot of good, you know, this has obviously become a highly competitive field and, and there's a first mover advantage, there's wide adaptation, but there also are a lot of other platforms. There's BlueJeans, Microsoft Teams, a lot of other Web, WebEx still, a lot of other uh, platforms. But the real issue is, is, is there a cultural issue? The technical issue is one issue, making it work remotely. Is there a cultural issue within the court that is making it a difficult conversation? I would say there's a cultural issue among a, a certain segment of the bar that's making it an issue, whether it's, whether it's court or counsel. I think the younger generation who's comfortable with this kind of technology, it will be easy to adapt with it. But I think the folks that are sort of the decision makers right now are not as comfortable with this world that we're, we're currently living in. And so I think it needs to be a bit of a cultural shift towards embracing uh, what's happening here. It's happening. I mean, I, I am doing, as I'm sure many people who are listening to this, I'm doing remote video depositions multiple times a week. And it's a blessing. I'm, I, my, my wife and I actually get to spend time with each other in a way up until February 22nd, 2020. I've been on an airplane twice a week, almost every week, all year long. And so for me to be home and at the end of the day, be where I want to be and not where I have to be has been a pleasure. And I think the courts just need to find a way to embrace this 
so that we can all work in a new paradigm, but it's going to take some time to bring everyone on board. It's not only travel. I mean, I think we've all found that uh, we have an extra two or three hours a day of most days uh, simply because we don't have to travel into an office. But we talked about the cultural, that there are two aspects to the, to the cultural difficulty, and I think they have to be separated out. One could be a discomfort with using, with using the technology, even if it, if it works perfectly and doesn't have to be learned, just simply using a screen instead of being physically present. That's one level of discomfort that is it, part of a separate discussion. Part of the discomfort you're, you're talking about, though, I think is discomfort with, with using the technology technically. What button do I press? What key do I press? What if things go wrong? And what other organizations have found is that the way you deal with that is, is by hiring a specific group of people who are nothing but technologists uh, that help to run uh, the virtual systems that make it possible so that all you deal with is uh, the discomfort of using the screen instead of in person. Uh, I know Jams, for example, and, and other, other providers, uh, by hiring people specifically responsible for running the technology uh, during the process, it has really removed any discomfort among very, very senior people, uh, many of whom had never been familiar with technology about utilizing the technology because there's someone there to deal with all the technical problems and setting it up, and, and then all that has to be dealt with is seeing the screen. You don't have to worry about pressing keys or buttons. So isn't part of this court management uh, bringing in new types of people into the organizations with direct responsibility for setting up, managing, and making comfortable the use of the technology so all we're dealing with is the screen issue rather than how does it work issue? I think the reality is uh, when I've tried this before, uh, you know, more than a decade ago, the, the uh, judicial assistants uh, have a very powerful union and they have very specific jobs and they're very critical to what we're doing here because the JAs are the ones that are coordinating the hearings for the court. They're the ones that are controlling the technology. I think we need to have our JAs really trained in how to use this, how to mute people they need to mute, how to kick people out they need to kick out. I think that it's a training issue, 100%. I'm not sure we need to hire new people, but I think we need to retrain the folks that are, that are in the system and know the system well, but we need to get them comfortable uh, with the process going forward. I don't think we need another layer of bureaucracy so much as we need to kind of just rethink the paradigm of how we've done it before. Well, this is, you know, there's a lot of literature and a lot of experience and a lot of practice of changing culture of institutions from within. And again, if this is a question of dealing uh, with people who are already functioning as, as judicial assistants, uh, have there been ongoing meetings and discussions with them about what, what might happen here? Uh, what has been the process among the bar of dealing with the courts and the employees in terms of looking toward a change in remote access? So I would say Sherry Carter with the LA County uh, Court System is, is really a proponent for technology. Uh, she was sub substantially in involved in the federal courts and implementing their technology solutions. So Sherry is a perfect person to be the tip of the spear on this, uh, but it's really gonna be an internal court discussion. The bar has little to no uh, involvement and or influence. It's got to be done totally within the court system. But, you know, we need someone like Sherry Carter, who's really forward thinking to move the, the rest of the court in that direction. Yeah, no, she is absolutely terrific. But, but certainly uh, the, 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 the bar, the organized bar, I mean, there's no split on this between areas of practice, is there? There's no split between plaintiffs and defense counsel on this. Isn't mm -hmm. this something that all the firms want to function more, more efficiently? Yeah, I would think this is certainly a bipartisan issue is trying to make this work better for everyone. No questions, bipartisan. Yeah. And so we have L.A. County. And what is your experience around the state? Is, are other counties doing it differently or better? Or you know, That's, of course, one of the issues is each, each county is kind of doing it a little bit differently. And it just depends upon what county you're in, how they're going to be doing it. I don't love that but I guess that's just the nature of the way it's currently evolving. And it'd be terrific if there was a statewide solution so that if you're, if you're going to appear in, 
in uh, El Dorado County. The process is the same as LA or San Diego, uh, but we've not yet gotten there. I think uh, court call was probably the closest we had because most counties use court call and court call had their own video piece of this, but that for some reason did not get adopted here in LA. Um, but it would be helpful, I think, on a statewide level if we could have a uniform virtual appearance platform that all the courts are able to adopt. But that's that's a bigger uh, mouthful that I'm prepared to. to, to oh no, no, but you know we went through an analogous, uh, analogous kind of thing in this with the with the management and and ownership of courts, and when the courts used to simply be uh, within each county and financed by each county, went to a statewide system of. Of, of, of court financing. So there have been other movements and we went through this with the uh, consolidation of the muni uh, municipal and superior courts. So there have been other issues where the, the culture uh, and the existing structure uh, was under challenge and, 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 and managed to adapt uh, in, in, in very interesting ways. And when we talk about the court courts themselves, we have this enormous budget for building new courts. Given what we're talking about, are we talking about designing courts in a different way in order to make the, make them more efficient now? One might question whether or not we need to be designing courts in the first place, whether the physical space that, that courts occupy and the resources involved in constructing them uh, in light of what we're experiencing now is the way to proceed forward. My, my new forward thinking part of my world is transportation. And I'm a real fan of, of aerial vehicles, vertical takeoff aerial vehicles, because I think that's going to be the future of transportation uh, in California and around the world. And so the roadways, the constructions of roads and gas stations, and all those things should disappear and we'll get off of the terrestrial planet and start finding ways of moving around that are not a part of the traditional power dot. But talking about courthouses, uh, what I was referring to was, you know, the current, again, it, it raises cultural and other very important issues, but the current model of one judge, one courtroom, and all courtrooms being available for trials, if we're really going to move to a great many things heard remotely, then it's not clear that you need to stick with the one judge, one courtroom in terms of, of assignments and construction. What you really need, isn't it, are some smaller offices for judges to hear remote items on and perhaps larger courtrooms uh, to deal with what concerns the jurors might have about, uh, the, uh, about the health concerns. I mean, that, that's when you're starting every other area that's been affected by the pandemic is dealing with its real estate consequences. Medical offices, because of telemedicine, are, are dealing with it. Law offices, large offices are turning back whole floors to their landlord for sublease, not just because of the pandemic, but because there's a new paradigm for how their lawyers will work. And don't the courts, in terms of their adaptation to this, just as we talked about setting up satellite access for jurors, isn't this part of the overall discussion, given the challenges to, de to dealing with what we're facing in the courts? I would say that it's a much, much larger issue to grapple with than the simplicity of having remote trials uh, with the court. I think that if there are more and more remote trials and appearances, the need to have the physical space will, will change. But I think there really has to be the movement to, to the, I suppose, if you took away the, the courtrooms, we'd have no choice but to move to a more virtual environment. Uh, but I think it's fair to ask the question, Howard, should we be investing billions of dollars in traditional courthouses in the future uh, in light of the way we're currently managing things and the way things might proceed into the future? And uh, uh, it's a good issue. No, and I think that's one of the important questions. That's a very precise way to put it. We've come back to where we began, which is the importance of adapting our technology to dealing with the real challenge to justice. And that's the way we have to look at the issues we've been discussed. We've started to use code words that remove the emotions and the stakes. We talk about backlogs and technology and remoteness. But what we're talking about is a fundamental challenge to justice because if there are no courts, there is no law. 
And we're talking about, we use the word backlog, but behind the word backlog, in all kinds of cases, not just traumatic injury, but in business disputes, in real estate disputes. If people live in an environment where they don't know that they can get to court and have a judge or a jury decide things for them, all sorts of other things start to break down. And so we need to talk about this, not with our anodyne words that don't include the emotions, but with an understanding that it's clients and people's lives that are being directly affected and that our obligation as members of the legal profession is to focus on on helping people uh, no matter what the cultural challenge is. My final word on the subject is we've always talked about the words access to justice. It's a very important thing for all, access to justice. Nothing has done more to give us access to justice in a real tangible way than what we've experienced for the last year. It really opens the door to the justice system to everybody. And I'm hopeful that that's really going to be a theme we can carry into the future. That's a wonderful connection of technology, the values we live by. Thank you so much, Paul Kiesel, for joining us. You demonstrated a long time ago how technology could affect law practice. You've demonstrated in what we've spoken of as case studies, how you adapt to the current system. And we thank you very much and very grateful and honored that you've taken the time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Paul. My pleasure.